0: Good afternoon church, my name is Brett, I am pastor of this people It's good to see all of you, but especially those who are new to us today Glad you decided to make us your church home for an hour, appreciate it Today is Campus Sunday, and uh, Campus Sunday is not an ancillary ministry to who we are It is core to who we are We believe in the college campus ministry It's one of the things for which I was sent to do That's how I got here Thirty-five years ago to help plant this church, I was the minister, campus minister, for Howard University. Howard didn't pay me. They didn't even ask me to come. I just showed up and said, I think some people need to be one here. And God did something. And there were other ministers that showed up at different universities. And we all established campus groups there at the university where we were and George Mason, American, Georgetown, George Washington and Howard we would then bring our students together and do church on Sunday morning that was the planting of this congregation and we have not departed from that we still reach out to Howard University 35 years later have an outreach to George Mason 35 years later outreach to George Washington, Georgetown 35 years later and American University and we've extended beyond that to now include University of Maryland in the last 3 or 5 years God's doing some amazing things at the University of Maryland. And our goal is to hit all 12 major campuses in the D.C. area. Catholic University, Trinity, Gallaudet University. There are so many more places we need to go. But we realize that the campus is is where the leaders of tomorrow are and is often one of the more neglected areas of outreach to churches. It's, it's, it's a generation that is hard to figure out for people who are my age and people who are my age are, the, are, are primarily the folks that lead churches 40s and 50s, 50, 50 60 year olds and so the, the generation gap is huge and they don't know how to reach them secondly, they don't have any money when they do campus kids are a different kind of poor They they have extreme resources and that they are getting this education and the potential is amazing, but they can barely buy Domino's pizza once a week. And so there are no resources there, so you got double things. When I win them, they can't help keep the lights on in the church, and I don't even know how to win them. So they pretty much just let it go. But we concentrate on it because we know the leaders of tomorrow are there, and God wants to hit that age group. Do you know how old John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the, the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you know how old he was when Jesus got him? 18. He was a freshman in college. A freshman. So when Jesus went on to be with God, the Father, after he was crucified, this Apostle was all of maybe 22, maybe 22, may, most likely 21. Who would want to call, your, call anyone? at 21 your pastor but Jesus thought good idea he was the youngest the oldest was Peter who was 30 everybody else fell in the middle there so they were either in college or in graduate school that's who Jesus thought was the best the, the, the pool from which he could pull the best possible folks to lead his new thing called church wow so we've chosen to use that that pool of people as the folks that we can train for the next generation so if you're going to be a part of this church you're going to be a part at some level of seeing us do that turn with me over to the book of Isaiah chapter 55 Isaiah 55 we're going to look at verses 6 through 11 the title of the message is meaningful speech we're going to continue our series on the word of God today meaningful speech Isaiah speaking in verse 6 of chapter 55 he says seek the lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the lord and he will have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts the lord begins to say are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts, your thoughts. Verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Lord, help as we study your word, please. Three things I'd like to talk to you about. Man's privilege to seek God, God's disposition toward man, and then God's utterance regarding that disposition. Isaiah is a prophet who had the privilege of serving four kings. So he, he, he was a prophet for a very long time, called at a young age, got the privilege of living for a very long time and he served under some really good kings this was generally a a great period of the monarchy for Judah the southern kingdom Uzziah was his first king Jotham, the son after him Hezekiah uh, these these were, were marked in summary as being some of the best Judah ever had and Hezekiah was called the best king Judah ever had Now, he wasn't the best king Israel ever had, which represented before the nation was split, because David was that. So David was the best king over all of Israel. But when the nation split, and you had a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom had no good kings at all. You had one that wasn't a bad king. His name was Jehu. But everybody else was a mess. In Judah, you had a bunch of good kings. And many of them served under isaiah's prophetic ministry but even if the king is good it doesn't mean the people are so you can have a wonderful man sitting on the throne but the people that he serves might be a mess and so isaiah is correcting everything in israel that's wrong during all the reigns of these good kings the kings have pointed due north but the people are still going east Something's wrong here. Something's not right. And, and, and in verse, of, verse 6 of chapter 55, Isaiah realizes what's going on, and he's giving a remedy to that. He's saying, seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near, implying that there's, there's a time when, when you seek him that he might not be found like you like. And there's a time that you might want to call upon him, but don't find him as near as you desire. So you better seek him when he can be found and call upon him when the possibility of his nearness is true. Doesn't mean God is not with us at any time because he is omnipresent This is one of the things that makes him God is that he is every place at once and he has specifically said he will be with his people but the issue is not so much whether he is with you it's whether you are with him. How far have you departed from him that he is no longer near to you? How far have you run away as a result of wanting to do your own thing rather than his? How long have you been like Adam where God has to go searching for you? Though he knows where you are, he will still say, where are you? Not that he might determine it, but that you might know where you are when it comes out of your mouth. You have drifted so far, you don't know how far you've drifted. Where are you? Do you know? Seek him while he may be found. Now I'm convinced that he can be found about any time when somebody seeks him. But he's just found differently. Now, there are those moments when some people might be able to seek him and not find him. And that, from my perspective, is when judgment comes without remedy. Where there's no way to fix whatever went wrong. And somebody's going to experience the consequences of their misdeed without the element of mercy involved. It's not a part of the recipe. That's a sad day. Sad day. Nobody ever wants to experience that. But generally speaking... It happens on the other, other, other extreme. The standard operating procedure is that God will let you find Him. It's just at different degrees of finding Him, depending upon what you've done and, and how long it took you to get back to to ground zero. You want to seek Him while He may be found, and that means, preferably, before you do stupid. Before Brett does stupid, that's when I need to seek him because he's easily found then. Before I venture out of my marriage commitment and decide to be with somebody who is not my wife, I better seek him before that. Because if I seek him after that, I very well might find him with respect to forgiveness because he's so merciful and he's so kind. But I'm going to have to quit my job. I don't know if my marriage will survive. I'll find him in a way that I need, but not in every way that I need. I'm going to have to pay some consequences. If I had sought him before I got with Jane, Susie, then it very well might be that I never would have got with Jane or Susie. Thank God I ain't got with Jane or Susie. So I am seeking him while he might be found to strengthen me so I don't do stupid. Because when I do stupid, it's hard to recover from the consequences of doing stupid. Really hard. I find him differently than I find him right now. Seek him while he might be easy to find. And Jesus helps with this. I mean, the disciples say, teach us how to pray, God. Jesus teaches us how to pray. We don't know how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not where? Into. So you are praying before temptation ever presents itself to not be led there. That's seeking him while he might be found. Lead me not into temptation. And deliver me from every form of evil that might want to come upon me. Because I don't want to go there today. Seek him while he might be found. When you want to find him in the completeness of fellowship. And in, 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 in the blessing of him putting affirmation and approval upon your entire life. Without there being some qualification. When you want to find him like that, you got to find him before you do stupid. Otherwise, there's always going to be qualification. Oh, I love you so much. I forgive you. Come on home. But this is going to change. Yeah, you're going to have to go through that. You see, you embezzled funds. So I forgive you, but they don't. So you're going to start a prison ministry. How's that? When you do stupid it's hard to recover you can't find them like you normally would the good thing is that Isaiah says this because it all fits together here there's a continuation of thought and whenever I'm trying to teach you I usually stay in one passage I don't go to 15 different to try to make a point I stay in one passage why do I do that because I want you to know what the writer was trying to communicate when he was trying to say what he was trying to say, to whom he was trying to communicate, so you can understand how to read your Bible best. So that when you don't have me, you can go home, open the word, and say, that's what that means. Because you can't get a good application until you have a good interpretation. And if your interpretation is wrong, generally your application is always going to be wrong. So you want to know what the writer was trying to communicate so you can best apply it to your life accurately. Accurately. So I stay in the passage so that you can go home and think, I didn't, know, I didn't know I was supposed to read like that. I get that now. That's really good. And then you can have the confidence that you can read your Bible the way it's supposed to be read. That's why I stay in a passage. So Isaiah is working this thing. He says, I want you to seek him while he might be found. Do that. That's going to really help you. But I know most of you don't do that. Mm-mm, you do stupid. So here's my disposition. This this is how I want you to know I am. If if the wicked man forsakes his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and people who do bad stop doing bad and, and turn toward me, I want you to know that my whole mindset is different than yours regarding people who do like that to you. Meaning when people do stupid to you, You always have to decide, am I going to forgive them? Well, you know, it kind of depends on the degree of the sin, doesn't it? I mean, if they really didn't mean to, if it was a mistake. And they're really repentant and contrite. Okay, I forgive you. Yeah, just don't do it again. But if it's that kind of sin where somebody stabbed you in the back on Instagram. (laughs) Made it public. Your worst moment at a party at 2 a.m. And they filmed it and, and shed it abroad. Now you lost your job. Because other people, your supervisor saw it. You lost your job. And that person did it because they were mad at you. They got you back. They called the police on you. They did some things to you. They just kind of... Oh, that's a different kind of sin. I don't know if I can forgive that. I don't know if I can let that go. That's not just your run-of-the-mill. I made a mistake. They intended to hurt you. They stabbed you in the back. They said some... You have to... Boy, you, you go to bed thinking about... You wake up thinking about that. All day long you're thinking about that. And you have to struggle with the idea of what forgiveness looks like. It's not one of these prescriptions that God gives. Well... If you stop thinking the way you think and you forsake your bad deeds and you come back and try it, okay, we're buds again. Mm -mm. You don't even want to see them again. If you hear their name, it turns you inside out. God says this, I don't think like you think at all. Not at all. My ways are not your ways at all. Because we, we grade sin out as being that which is forgivable and that which, I don't know. I mean, I know I need to as a good Christian, but uh, is, that, is that what Jesus was talking about when he said we need to really stretch out and believe to forgive? I don't know. I mean, Idi Amin, mean, does Idi mean need to be forgiven? Now, some of y'all don't even know who he was. One of the most horrible, ruthless leaders in the history of man. He's in our my generation, the 80s and 90s. And I mean he did things that are unmentionable from here. Almost unmentionable in, in just conversation. Horrible. And if you knew what he did, I think that most of us would say, God, can I have a conversation about you? About E.D. I mean, because I see him in heaven and I don't understand that one. How about Hitler? Everybody knows about Hitler. Horrible. But if you see him in heaven, you're going to be surprised. See, we grade out sin as some being, "Mm," and then some being, yeah. God doesn't think like you, He doesn't think like me. His ways are not yours. Adam and Eve. <laughs> in the garden had everything they way, the way they wanted. Perfection. Could eat any tree and have as much of it as they wanted. Thousands of trees in this garden, we believe. Because in Ezekiel 14, it gives in retrospect a picture of what the Garden of Eden was like. And it said it had a mountain in it. So any garden that's got a mountain is a pretty big garden. Thousands of trees you couldn't eat. God said, "Enjoy yourself. Have as many apples, nectarines, tangerines, whatever you want. Just one tree you can't eat from. Just one. In the day you eat of it, it's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you will die." We read our Bible in continuity. So when we read Genesis, we're thinking about Ephesians. We we understand what forgiveness is, and we understand what mercy is, because we have grown up in the environment of understanding at least the basics of theology and how we get right. But remember, sometimes you need to read your Bible just like the people who were going through it, in that time frame, in order to really understand what they were going through. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was no concept in human language of forgiveness. Why? Because there was no need for it. In human language, there was no word for mercy. It didn't exist. Why? Because there was no need for it. So all Adam and Eve knew, hear me, really important that you get this. All Adam and Eve knew was that if they ate from that tree, they were dead. That's all they knew. Dead. There was no concept of mercy or forgiveness. They died. Brett's 13, 14 I get invited to a buddy of mine's house it's going to be a little party we have and mama says be home at 11 so my buddy's supposed to bring me home he can drive, I can't and I stay out till 1 I don't know whether you had a mother like this but, but just help me for a minute when you came home after being out later than you should have, was, did, did your mama do this? My son, come to me. I choose to offer you forgiveness. I know you have done wrong, but please, it is time to be restored. I offer you my re relationship. I want you to come to me. Let me hug you in the arms of mercy. You didn't grow up with a mom? That wasn't your mama? Yeah, surely wasn't mine. I knew when I came home, judgment was mine. I was in trouble. There's no way I could get around it. And she was going to find anything she could to beat me belts, shoes, spoons, whatever was close. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's the first thing they do? Run. Why? Because all they knew was what God said. You're dead. We we take for granted the mercy of God so much that that many times we have it in the the back of our mind. We carry it in our, our, our back pocket, and this is our mindset. Well, please forgive me for what I'm about to do. We know the forgiveness is there. And so we do stupid anyway. But what if, you, what, if you, what if you had the mindset that forgiveness was not even a thought? That mercy did not exist. And, and evil was presented before you. What would you do then if you knew that if you did that one thing and we're not talking about just knocking over 7-Eleven murdering somebody all Adam did was eat a piece of fruit what if you knew that that was going to cost you your life would you do it oh you very well might but you would think twice because mercy was not even an option the concept did not exist and just like coming home at one when you were supposed to be at home at 11 when you were 14 you knew judgment was there you would do exactly what Adam and Eve did they ran. They ran and they hid themselves. They found the closest tree they could find. God comes to, to fellowship with him in the cool of the day, have his moment of real relational bonding. And, and he, where are you? He's not. Whenever God asks a question, he's never looking for information. He knows already the answer to whatever question he's answering. The reason he's asking is to know if you know where you are. To give you insight, once you answer it, about how far you have drifted from your original course, Adam, where are you? Uh, yeah, um, see what had happened was um you know that woman? you know a woman you, yeah, that that like you gave me? well, she she gave- she gave she gave me some of this fruit that she ate, and i what was I supposed to do? I mean, she gave it to me, so I ate woman, did you do this? um yeah, well, you know, there was this serpent that I really didn't create I didn't have anything to do with him. he just showed up and he was in the garden, he started talking to me, and he deceived me, and like i mean. He seemed really smart, and I, the fruit looked good, so kind of, yeah, but it was really the serpent. Sound like anybody you know? <laughs> Never taking responsibility, blame shifting, always looking at something else as being the primary reason why you did wrong? Surely it wasn't you. It was a bad environment in which you grew up. It was the abuse you suffered when you were 15. It's the boss's fault. It's the supervisor's fault. It's your co-worker's fault. It's everybody's fault. It's never Brett's fault. Ever. They thought at the end of their explanation, the hammer was dropping. He said we were going to die. This is it. We're done. And then God goes and finds an animal and kills the animal. And they're looking, thinking, what's what i'm saying is not articulated in scripture so i'm making this up but it sounds really good (laughs) he kills this animal and then he skins the animal and puts the skins on him and i don't think he became a tailor then i think he literally skinned the animals in order to clothe them because we're never supposed to be naked we're always supposed to be covered now he created them without clothes but they were always covered And that shame was not a part of their existence. Only honor and glory. And so they needed nothing else. But when shame became a part, then they needed something else to cover their shame. Fig leaves would always dry up, weren't good enough. God made something that covered their shame. And I'm convinced that when he did so, these skins were still bloody. Allowing them to feel what redemption was supposed to feel like. And while they were there, experiencing this, and then also being kicked out of their house, they were the first homeless couple. And then God told them, Adam, this ground is going to yield for you not even close to what what Eden did. In fact, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. You're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much. Thorns and thistles will be your dessert. That's the best we can do thorns and thistles. In the midst of that, you know we don't hear any complaining from Adam and Eve? Zero. Not one complaint. We do hear complaint about their son Cain who said, my punishment is too great to bear. But none from Adam and Eve. Why? Because they knew what they deserved. They should have died. And they didn't. All of a sudden new vocabulary came into being forgiveness mercy kindness benevolence baby I know it's bad I know we got kicked out of our house I know I'm going to have to work really hard and the food is not going to be what it used to be but we're alive now they died spiritually but they lived another 900 years physically we're alive our God is amazing what we did deserved death our God is amazing But we take forgiveness and mercy for granted so much that we, if not coming out of our mouth, have the mindset of, even if I do wrong, it's not going to matter that much because my God forgives me. Shame on us. I beg you, allow the sense of judgment that should be hanging over every one of our lives. The Sword of Consequence that should deal with us righteously, allow that to be seen every day that we we can magnify his mercy and say it's so beautiful that i don't have to experience it, God that you poured it all out on your son that i didn't have to take it. You are amazing, Jeremiah says in Lamentations while the people of God are in Babylon experiencing the judgment for disobedience for for 490 years of disobedience the people of God are in Babylon having been taken captive Jeremiah is writing this book called Lamentations and in chapter 3 he describes what is going on in the midst of their judgment he says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercy never comes to an end lamentations twenty two lamentations three twenty two and twenty three His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. in the midst of being judged naturally, he realized, I still breathe, my people still breathe. We still haven't experienced judgment without repair. His mercy is even in the midst of our difficulty. Oh, you're so good that every morning, even though it's hard, I still get to wake up to mercy. That's an appreciation that stems from the fact that he knows what he should deserve, what he should get. And the only way we're going to understand our God best is to realize he created these ideas of mercy and forgiveness. For your and my benefit. Because he didn't want us to be judged. And every day. We need to worship him for it. I don't care how hard your life is. Though I do care. It should have no bearing. On how much you worship. You need to lift your hands and praise every day. If you still draw breath. Because your eyes opened to his mercy, not his judgment. That's how good our God is. And he says, my thoughts aren't yours. They don't even have anything. You don't think like me at all. Though you have done stupid, if you turn from your ways, my disposition is to offer you forgiveness. To restore you to myself to give you what you do not deserve and to prove it I want you to look at what happens in the heavens because I dwell in a different kind of heaven but you you call your space between earth and sky heavens let's look at what happens in the heavens in your natural heavens stuff falls from the sky we call it rain and snow and when it falls it does stuff before it returns back to the sky it waters the earth to such a degree that it produces things for my people. Not just my people who are called Israel, but for people in general. It produces things for them. It allows them to live well. It blesses folk. And I do this indiscriminate of folks' obedience. God is blessing people all the time that don't serve him. And, 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 and by, evidenced by the fact that when they get blessed, you get mad. Lord, I'm serving you. How come I don't get blessed like that? How'd they get the promotion? I've been tithing. I've been offering. I've been doing what I need to do with small groups and church attendance. And I'm not getting any of that. Rather than getting mad at the people who are being blessed, what you need to do is be happy. Because they become a testimony to you that if God can bless them, surely yours is right around the corner. It's on the way. It's on the way. It's on the way. But we look at how God blesses people who don't serve Him. He lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. Rain is always seen in the Bible as a blessing, never as a curse, ever. It's only we who fancy vacations and Saturdays at the beach (laughs) that rain is seen to be a problem. It was never seen that way in the Bible. It was always a blessing. So when Jesus said He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, He's not saying blessing and then curse. He's saying double blessing. This is how God treats mankind, with mercy. He says, you see that? Know this, that as you watch the rain and the snow fall, and it waters the earth so that the earth can bring forth vegetation, that my people, the people I created, can live, both those who are covenantal and those who are not. As you see that, know that my word will be exactly the same, that as I speak it from heaven, when it falls to the earth, it will not return to me for. And this shows some idea that the prophet had of the hydrolytic cycle—that that thing where waterfalls falls and, and it finds its way either to the seas or to the rivers or it's in a plant and then respiration happens in the plant we call photosynthesis and chlorophyll works and, and all of a sudden it gives off water again through as it breathes through the stomata and you don't know anything about what i'm talking about but this is how it happens and then it goes back into the sky and it comes back down he says before my word comes back to me it produces that which i sent it forth to do it's not coming back to me empty When I say I forgive, I do it. And I bring forth redemptive benefit to my people. Doesn't matter how messed up they are. It doesn't matter how much they've done. If they will return to me and forsake their wicked ways and stop their stupid thinking, I will forgive their sin and bring them close to me. That's the way our God disposes himself. He brings an utterance that says, come to me. This is what I offer you. And it works. As evidenced by the fact. That you are here. And when I say something you like. You clap. (laughs) You're affirming. What is true about your God. And that he is faithful like this. And it's not just. That mercy covers your immediate. That forgiveness attends. To your daily moment. But it. It guards your way going forward. That we get the privilege of being led by him. That the steps of a good man are what? Ordered by God. Now what is that but his mercy and grace? This package that allows us to step in a way that we could not on our own. And not only does it help us immediately with forgiveness and help us know which way we need to go in terms of doing right forward, but he says this. The Lord is my shepherd. I will never want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I, I won't fear any evil, because his rod and his staff, his authority, his word, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy have my back. They follow me all the days of my life. And as a result, he gives me the keys to the house. I get to dwell in his house forever. I'm not just a visitor. I get to live there. I've got a room in God's house his mercy follows me all the days of my life there is not an element of our life that is not dependent upon his mercy not one not your future not your present and not your past this is how he thinks I beg you don't take advantage of his thoughts Don't live in such a way as you feel entitled to his benevolence because anyway, I mean, nobody's perfect, right? So I I sin, that's what people do, and then God forgives, and I just go sin more. I beg you, honor the disposition that God has with you by appreciating it, and the best way you can do that is live as best you can so that mercy is one of those things that needs to be used intermittently with respect to your conduct. Most of the time, he is distributing grace in your life for you to live well rather than always trying to cover you for your version of stupid. Let's pray. God, I'm asking for your grace. Please empower us and help us to live the way we should so we can honor you in all that we